The Women of Ill Repute, with your hosts, Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Wendy, have you ever been scammed, like seriously scammed, like by a serious scam artist? No, not really. Like, I feel like I was scammed. Like, there was the eavesdrop guy. Um, that was pretty bad. That was What happened? Well, I gave him 200 bucks to clean up the eavesdrops, and he disappeared. So he was a scam, but... I guess I wouldn't call him an artist. No, no, no. I had a guy come to my house once and knock on the door and he says, is that your car across the street <laughs> with one with a dent in it? And I said, yes. And he said, I can put some cream on it that will make the dents go away. <laughs> and, okay, uh, so he, this wasn't yesterday, I hope. This yeah, no, no. <laughs> but it, I mean, I was an adult. And he said, I'll give, if you give me a hundred bucks, I'll put some cream on the dent. And then I'll come back tomorrow and buff it out. So I gave him a hundred bucks and he put this toothpaste or something on the tent and left. <laughs> but it probably, I mean, toothpaste is great. Apparently you can put toothpaste in wall in holes in the wall. It's a, it's like amazing. But you know what? These, these guys are grifters. They're not actual, the, the, the keyword is artist. A scam artist has artistry involved in pulling the wool over somebody's eyes. It's, it's performative. I mean, look at um, Better Call Saul or Inventing Anna or these, these are true artists. Well, yeah. I mean, it's imagine if they if it became true artists and weren't just grifters. I, I mean, you know, like there's The Sting, there's uh, Ocean's Eleven. Oceans twelve, Oceans thirteen. There's a few of them. In all, in all these narratives, you root for the scam artists. Rarely the victim. They're often portrayed as clueless patsies. Patsies, really? Patsies, yeah. It's like chumps, right? But not in Zoe Whithall's book, The Fake. Yeah, it's such a good book, actually. The Fake. She writes up a storm. She's written a whole bunch of books, all highly acclaimed. Her third novel, The Best Kind of People, it was shortlisted for the for the Giller. She's done stand up. She has worked as a writer on Degrassi, Baroness von Sketch, Schitt's Creek. She's a poet. She's, well, she's a writer. She writes everything. She writes all the things. But this latest novel, The Fake, is inspired by her own personal experience with a scam artist. Actually, a sociopath is what you would probably call them. Uh, so let's talk about that. Liars and the people who love them. Welcome, Zoe Whithall. Hi, Zoe. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's lovely to see you. I think you're almost like, you know, like you had to do this podcast because you're, to me, you're like a little sister. Like you, you spent time in Montreal like me and you're from the Eastern Townships. I've just, just sort of moved there and you live in Prince Edward County and I live in Prince Edward County now. So we're, you're like my little sister. So you have to do this. <laughs> Well, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Yeah, it's lovely to see you. So go ahead, Maureen. I, that's, uh, <laughs> I'm sure there's much more weighty things to speak of. Well, no, the family reunion is wonderful. But Zoe, let's talk about the fact that this book in particular was inspired by an experience that you went through. Do you want to tell us about that? Absolutely. So when I was in my late 20s, I dated a woman who lied to me about having cancer. She lied about all sorts of other things as well. And I always knew after that experience that I would write about it, but I needed a lot of time to be able to find the humor in it because meeting and interacting with someone who is a, a pathological liar is like strangely devastating, very humiliating, but also just like 
piqued my writerly curiosity. It made me feel like I was living in the last 10 minutes of a Law and Order episode where I was like, what's going to happen? And then you never really figure it out in most cases. Like most people who are like con artists or who have this type of personality will move on from mark to mark as soon as they're discovered. And that was certainly was the case with my relationship as well. And then so for years, I just thought like, that is a weird thing that happened. I want to write about it, but I need the distance to find the humor in it and to be able to fictionalize it in a way like the character of Cammy, who is the liar in the book, The Fake, is very, very different from the person who I experienced. But she shares a lot of the same traits because I think a lot of people with this kind of personality disorder or however you want to frame it, they sort of follow the same patterns of speech, the same patterns of manipulation. And ever since I had that experience, I became obsessed with like consuming media and books and TV shows and movies about scammers because they are so similar and it would be very comforting to watch other people go through those similar patterns. So what, by the time the pandemic hit, I, you know, this was part of a two book deal and I knew I had to write another book and it was during lockdown. And I was like, I think I finally have the space and the time to really think deep into the experience of two people who get taken in, in this kind of way, because it's a unique uniquely like weirdly uncomfortably shameful experience and that I think shame is a great route for narrative. I have so many questions but I it's just so weird because someone really close to me I mean I can tell you off camera the the whole sordid story but someone really close to me a friend of theirs basically lied about having cancer lied about uh, all kinds of monstrous things that had happened and uh, supposedly faked a suicide lied about all kinds of weird things that had happened to family members. Apparently, it, it's it's like a, it's a thing. It's apparently you are not the only person that this happened to. It's who are these people? <laughs> right. I think, and I think one of the questions I had while writing the book was, how do I write that character? Like everything is shifting. Like how do you embody a character that has a shifting interiority? You know. And I think that like the fascinating thing, it is a type of personality disorder or a type of post-traumatic reaction, or it's, it's the kind of mental illness, I think, that is so stigmatized that people, we don't talk about it as much. And it's really hard to reckon with. Like I never really found an answer to what my ex-partner, why she was the way she was, but I have a lot of theories. The theories are that, you know, some kids who are emotionally neglected will you know how all kids go through that phase where they figure out lying and they're like and they kind of delight in it it's I don't know it's age four or five or something I think that often people if they're traumatized or neglected during that time they don't grow out of it and they keep it as like a way to get through life or to get the things that they can't ask for directly like attention I also found it fascinating that a lot of the con artists that you hear about it when they're men they pretend to be like MI5 spies or like <laughs> So many men to pretend to be surgeons or in the army or whatever, high level, like these very masculine things. I would say that women of this personality will lie about things to get care. And I, I sometimes wonder, are they lying about being sick to get the care that they have never received or that they are expected to give others but can't, you know, like it's just a curious thing. And, you know, I think I was easily taken in in my own experience because I had never met anyone who had had cancer. And as soon as I had, like my, my best friend from high school had breast cancer. And as soon as I started to experience that, I was like, oh, how did I ever think that this, my ex ha had actual cancer? Like it, it just, but, but I think that people who manipulate this way, they figure out how 
they mirror you and they figure out what your vulnerabilities and your special interests are. And they pretend to be like the person you've always wanted. And then they figure out what you know and don't know and then manipulate accordingly. It's like a very charismatic, very weird kind of creepy intelligence, you know? I have a theory though, and it's Cammie, one of the people that she pulls the wool over their eyes, one of her patsies, if you will, the the woman that she gets involved with had just lost her wife and that's where she meets her. So it reminded me of the Helena Bonham Carter character in Fight Club, where she would go to grief groups just to feel something. And she was a con artist too, but she, she would explain that she would go to whether, you know, you were covering alcoholic or, or, or had lost somebody. She'd go to these groups because she was emotionally numb and she was looking for a way to connect. And I thought that was really interesting. I mean, it's still sociopathic. It's still bizarre because we never really understand what Cammy, Cammy's motivation is. I mean, she's, She's obviously troubled. She's obviously had a, a terrible past, but that's not enough to explain it. And I wonder, and here I'm talking about her like she's a real person, but I wonder if that emotional numbness is also something that drives sociopaths in general. Just throwing it out there. I wonder, you know, I don't know if you guys are on TikTok, but there's a fascinating group of people on TikTok who are diagnosed narcissists who talk about how they manipulate people and they, and some of them have a level of awareness and some of them have a level of therapy that they've now gone through to recognize the patterns that they have uh, used to manipulate people. And I feel like that's as close as I got to figuring out who Cammie really was. I'll explain a little bit about the book. So Shelby and Gibson get taken in. They're both in a very vulnerable place in their lives. Gibson's newly divorced and Shelby's wife has died of an aneurysm and they're both completely lost. And then this charismatic person comes into their life and sort of actually gives them some really positive things as well, like some positive reasons for living. And then it turns out that she's actually not who she says she is. And I never decide while writing if I wanted to give a definitive answer as to who Cammie is and why she is the way she is, because I feel in some ways you can't really know. I tried to find someone who had recovered from Munchausen syndrome. I tried to find reformed pathological liars. It was it was somewhat impossible to try to find someone who was in recovery to speak with me about what that would be like. And ultimately, I decided I wanted to focus on the experience of the people who get taken in. And I wanted to do it in a way that allowed for all the feelings that they have, even though they were contradictory. And I think people know who have like addictions in their family or people who have certain types of trouble, like you, st- you can still love someone who does horrible things and that that complication can drive you m- mad, you know? So Shelby and Gibson, when they meet each other and figure out that they've been manipulated not to trust each other and they put two and two together and realize that she didn't have cancer, which isn't a spoiler, you can tell from the name of the book. (laughs) We have two reactions where like, sometimes when they're angry, they want revenge, they want to tell everybody in her life that she's a scammer, they want to out her, you know, and then in some other ways, they want to help her. They're like, look, we do love you. What if we helped you get the therapy you need to start being true to yourself? And it's ultimately something that, you know, like addictions, you can't really change unless you want to, and you can't force someone to change. And, And then they're left feeling like, what just happened in our lives that this like tornado blew through it and made us think about the world and about like the role of honesty and truth so differently. Well, that's where we are now, right? We're trying to deal with what what is truth. And I love that the last chapter of the book is basically given to Cammie, where she's saying, 
like, screw you. And, and so she does, I think, see it as a skill. She's not going to admit anything. The intervention did not work, but she basically said, I helped all of you people. Um, and, and she, she, she did. So who's lying to who uh, ultimately, <laughs> which is something that you explore in the book, which is, which is fascinating. The segments where Cami addresses the reader, I wanted the reader to experience what it feels like to be charmed by her. And I felt like I really knew that that segment was working when I was going through the, with the copy editor and the copy editor's role is to fact check continuity, make sure everything is correct. And we, we had this like long exchange where she was like, well, well, Cami says this, but I don't know if this year it would have made sense for this year, this time. And then in the end, I was like, Oh wait, no, no, this entire section is a lie. Like none of this is true. It doesn't really matter if it's accurate, which I thought was very funny. And it made me feel better about that section because it's hard to write a character who's trying to con you, but I wanted the reader to experience that. And I wanted them in the end to be like, did she have cancer? Like, I think it's pretty obvious that, that she didn't, but I feel like there are ways that she, she addresses in that kind of first person monologue that I wanted to be a kind of seduction. So you did really have cancer, right, Maureen? No, I really did. And you really did. <laughs> I mean, it makes you wonder why would any, why would anybody do that? I mean, this is what we've been talking about, but here's a question. And I do know, I, I, I do know a couple of sociopaths or narcissists, so you can call them, or just people who think that they are Machiavellian in a positive way, you know, oh, I can fix stuff. But I wonder, and, and this is more to do with Zoe saying you couldn't find anybody to talk to. Do sociopaths know they're sociopaths? Do you think that they know that there's something wrong with them? The closest I could come to finding an answer was these, you know, these people on TikTok who say, you know, I'm a diagnosed narcissist, I'm a diagnosed sociopath, and then try to explain. And in some ways, you can, you wanted to think of it as a type of neurodivergence, you know, that they are this way, they've been this way since childhood. I've often thought that all people, you know, all people must be good in some way. And then maybe something happened that made them fear off the goodness path. But I don't really know what I think anymore after, after doing this much research for the book and, and having these experiences. But I don't know if they know. I think some people must know. They must feel a difference in them because I think that, that there is a way that, that the people on TikTok who talk about being sociopaths are like, oh, well, we watch how people behave when certain things happen and then we mimic. There was an interesting storyline and I can't remember which procedural it was that I was watching about, you know, a little girl who's very young who like take, kills an animal and takes it apart. And then later she is obsessed with becoming a surgeon. And there are high rates of sociopathy amongst surgeons and amongst high level CEOs, like all these, a lot of these positions of power where you, where it's a benefit to not think about others, you know, like, I feel like if you had a, if you had a lot of empathy, it would be very difficult to actually cut into somebody, you know, so that that's fascinating to me, but I don't really know the answer, but, but I, I loved while writing this book, thinking about all the possibilities, you know? Yeah, I look at a lot of people who are psychiatrists and I'm I'm like, really? Like you're you're dangerous. I don't think you should be advising other people what to do. So it's really hard to it's really hard to know because people I mean, do does everybody lie to themselves? Because your book sort of suggests that both the, the patsies and the scam artists are are lying. What what happened to me during that experience and also while writing the book, I was thinking about you know, when you meet someone who lies so egregiously and so obviously and emphatically, it makes you think about how we all lie. Like I certainly 
started to think about, oh, I lie to avoid conflict. I lie to appear polite. I lie to get professional situations or to not hurt someone's feelings. And it makes you really question your own sense of values and, and try and try to figure out what's what in terms of your own value system. And I do think that there is a part of our fascination with liars and scam artists is, is partly because I think it's fascinating to watch people break social norms. To me, in some ways, I'm like, look at the freedom they have to just do whatever when I'm like anxiously obsessed with like how I'm perceived or, or if I'm being a good friend or it's, it's fascinating to watch people who don't uh, who don't have a care in the world about that. And in fact, have another orientation. And it's just, it's fascinating, I think, especially since it's, it's a type of emotional manipulation that is so hard to detect. And, but I feel like once you've been through it, like I certainly feel like if I am at a party and somebody walks in who is extremely charismatic, who shares vulnerable personal things within the first like 30 seconds of meeting you, the kind of person where everyone's like, Oh my God, did you meet so and so? They're amazing. I know almost immediately like a, a light shines, a stage light shines down from the ceiling and is like, stay away from this person. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I have a sense now. Hey there. Uh, just so you know, Mo and I are not just the queens of podcasting. I'm not sure we're even that, but do go on. We're not part-time cowgirls. We just made that up. But we are writers. We're writers. Wendy and I write a newsletter on Substack. It's a weekly roundup of thoughts and experiences, sometimes serious, often not. Yeah, you're pretty funny. You you write about falling down a lot. Uh, you write about your dog. I do. You write about sex and politics and COVID. All very, very serious things. We have a few thousand subscribers, both free and paid. And you could be one of them if you'd like. Just go to substack.com and look us up by name or go to our website at womenofillrepute.com and sign up there. We'd love to meet you there. And now back to being the queens of podcasting. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. The Women of Ill Repute. So let's look at this from another point of view, from a comedic point of view, because your book is also very funny. And well, it is. And some of the shows that Wendy and I were talking about off the top, like uh, Ocean's Eleven and Better Call Saul, I mean, they are comedies. And uh, maybe the word for that would be caper. There are caper stories rather than, you know, like the, the fake is not a caper, but it, it is not completely different. And for some people like Cammie, it's like, hey, this will be fun. I'm going to put on a show and see how far I can take it. And so there's that aspect as well, right? There's that, this is this is fun. This is going to be fun for me and maybe fun for the people that I scam, but probably not. Who cares? Yes, she is a very funny character. It was important to me for the book to be funny because it is kind of absurd. And I feel that way about a lot of mental illnesses. Like I myself have you know, have had anxiety disorder and, and ADHD and all sorts of the more socially acceptable to talk about mental illnesses. And I, there is something absurdity about, absurd about them. Like there's it's some of my 
fears that I've gotten over have been absurd. My sense of humor is quite dark in that way. And I felt like uh, that had to be in the book too. And I feel like that's what came with the the time it took for me to really figure out how I wanted to tell this emotional story through these characters that I had to create in order to, I think, tell a kind of truth that I wouldn't have been able to tell in a memoir, for example. Do you know, that's, uh, I, I don't want to go on about this more than I have to, but nobody, everyone's afraid to laugh at certain aspects of mental health because you don't want to be, offend anybody. You know, it's not, you can't make Tourette syndrome jokes anymore. Not that you well, ever should, but it is sort of the last taboo. You can't body shame people, nor should you. And I'm not, I'm not advocating that you make fun of people with mental health issues. But on the same token, I'm not saying that it's not without humor. And we should maybe be more accepting of that. That's not a question. That's a statement. <laughs> I think we use humor as a way to understand ourselves and, and our, a way to explain the world to each other. And I feel like, uh, you know, like Maria Bamford is one of my favorite comedians and she talks about her mental illness in a way that is just I don't know I think kind of revolutionary and so funny because I don't know I think it just is funny it's it's incredibly difficult but I think all all things that are incredibly difficult are are funny in a way with time just the cliche but then there's Hannah Gatsby right who did that her first huge success was that the stand-up where she said I'm not going to do fat jokes anymore um, because yeah, I can do fat jokes and, uh, you know, Chris Farley or whatever made a, was, was successful and made fun of that. But I, and it's easy to get a laugh. I'm not going to do that anymore. And, and a lot of people were like, whoa, you just have a mental illness. I found her very moving and very funny, but not everybody did. And then her second one was about, okay, I had these issues. I've got these issues. So let's just talk about other things and be, and be funny. But there is, there is, as Maureen says, and you've acknowledged, there is like this fine line between what's funny and what's, what's mental illness. So. And the line keeps moving. The line is shifts. The line is different for different people. You know, some people say you just can't laugh at that. And I'm like, you can laugh at anything ultimately. Yeah. Well, we don't want to do any, uh, <laughs> any of those jokes here. Yeah, I do think that you can laugh at anything. It's just about how good the joke is and where the joke's coming from. You know, like I think that Hannah Gadsby's point about no longer making fun of herself in her own kind of comedic writing arc, I think that was really interesting and a new thing to say on such a large stage. And I think that, you know, there are certain things about myself I wouldn't joke about or I would only joke about if I found a really interesting way in that someone had never done before. So I'm going to try to think of an example. Okay, so a lot of people think you should never make rape jokes, for example. But I think like Beth Stelling has an excellent rape joke. I think Amy Schumer has an excellent rape joke. There's a bunch of, of very smart ways to go about it so that the laugh is not on the victim or the laugh is about the culture or, you know, is some, is a way of thinking about an issue that you've never heard before because i think what a lot of people are responding to when they're saying oh you shouldn't make that joke is that the joke was lazy or the joke was cliche or it's been done a million times you know or it was ignorant right it, i think you're right it just needs to be needs to be funny yeah <laughs> i know <laughs> that's all yeah <laughs> it just needs to be funny yeah yeah, well, I mean, everybody has a different sense of what's of what's funny. But I, I know somebody who was raped, and and she she really appreciated hearing 
somebody people joke about tell rape jokes like and it's like menopause you're not allowed to talk about menopause until lately there's all these earnest people talking about menopause and all of these other people who are shocked like you can't talk well like everything or almost everything i suppose should be able to be talked about including your book <laughs> the fake why didn't we know that it was about that I, I love quoting because, and I do it ad nauseum. Uh, Marshall McLuhan, who said, uh, "Every joke has a grievance. Every, especially every good joke, there's something at the bottom of it that upsets somebody at some point, and that's why we laugh. We laugh because we're shocked. It's a little bit of a shock, and then you're kind of laughing at how bad that, how like, oh wow, they went there, and so you're laughing almost apologetically, but you're still laughing, right?" I found it interesting reading about you, Zoe, that um, that you were inspired at age 11, that you wanted to write because you were reading Judy Bloom, and now her books have been banned. Yeah, and I mean, some things, some things should be canceled, I suppose, but Judy Bloom, like really? Are- Judy Bloom? Yeah, Judy Bloom. And, and what was her book? Are, are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Are You There, God? It's and, Me, Margaret. Yeah, and so she yeah. talked about how there's, yeah, and you didn't even realize it was about religion. Well, I guess you were 11. But what was the influence of Judy Bloom? Well, Judy Bloom was actually, even just on a stylistic level, I think to read something that was, that just had such a unique voice and was, you know, like first person monologue or even like a close third person. Like most of the stories that you encountered in the 70s and 80s when I was a kid were, um, you know, constructed in a certain kind of way so as to have a little bit of distance. And I think that Judy Bloom was one of the first pioneers of, of what, was really great about the first era of young adult books. You know, they were books for kids that understood kids instead of talking down to kids. And that was really unique for me. Like I remember in the sixth grade, because I was in the accelerated reading group, they were like, oh, we're going to let you read The Hobbit because, you know, everybody who gets to a certain level can have this like prize of winning The Hobbit. And I remember hating The Hobbit and being like, I don't really connect at all. And I thought it was so funny to look back on that. I was like, I I just wanted to read things that felt true. And that changes as you get older, hopefully. Although now there's a whole world of adults who read young adults. But I think it's really important at at the tween age to, to, you know, read stories told in this kind of way. I think Judy Bloom is so fantastic. I saw the movie and it was wonderful. Did you see the movie? I've got it on my list. I want it, I want to watch it on. Uh, it's I think I can't. Remember, it's on Netflix. I'm not sure, but it's available. So uh, and don't forget Chelsea Handler's. Are you there, uh, God? Are you there, vodka? It's me, Chelsea. There's that uh, version as well. So, are you actually allowed to say that you didn't like The Hobbit? I mean, I've never heard anyone say that publicly before. <laughs> I really don't, you know, it's so funny because I have, I have in the past taught creative writing workshops and there's always like four or five students who really want to write about elves and goblins and whatever. And I just, I can't, I'm such a, it's not a thing I'm proud of, but like, I'm just such a realist. I don't like to read speculative fiction and I don't understand how to, to be a good editor or a good teacher. And so I often will just tell people like, you should go for somebody who understands it. Cause I, you know, I don't want to knock it as a genre, but I just, you know, certain, we all have our own tastes. That's interesting. I think I knew that from a young age. <laughs> yeah. No, no, each to his own for sure. Uh, I can see, I like the fact that you describe yourself as uh, too much of a pragmatist, too much of a realist to, to, uh, to embrace that kind of world. Are you writing right now? I'm sure you're writing all the time. Yes, I am writing a book of short stories called Wild Failure. And I think it's one of the things I'm most proud of having written. Like, I think 
a lot of books come out and I feel like, oh, I wish I could rewrite this page. You know, I, they're never finished, but I feel very happy with this one. I also have a book of poems called No Credit River that's coming out shortly after. And I'm working on a book for the ECW Press Pop Matters series. And it's about the Gilmore Girls. I don't know if you've ever watched it. Really? Yes. Oh, God. Yes. I love the Gilmore Girls. So funny. And it's a show that's become this cult favorite and it has fans all over who rewatch and rewatch. And, uh, and so I'm writing a show about the Gilmore girls that I sort of came up with during lockdown and because I was rewatching it and, uh, I'm really excited about that too. Oh, I'm really excited about that. Yeah. So we live in the same town. I, I, yeah, we have to like run into each other buying vegetables or something. And, 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 and you're from the Eastern townships in Quebec, which I just moved to and I found very expensive and very fancy. But, but when you grew up, like apparently, yeah, I've talked to someone who says, Oh no, there, I got on the school bus in the morning and there was somebody who had like ringworm stains all over them. They had no plumbing. So what? Um, <laughs> It's, it's, yeah, it's it's very very different. I think. Yeah, so I hope you had a nice upbringing <laughs> in the eastern townships. My parents moved there in the seventies, to sort of back to the Landers, and my dad was an elementary school teacher, and we had a farm, like a hobby farm. And but it was like you know we lived there fifteen years, but we were always from away, so to speak, because like the the families had been there generations, generations. Everybody on my school bus were cousins, except for us. But I loved it there. It's beautiful. It's one of those places where when I go back, I can see with adult eyes, like oh, it's actually quite gorgeous. And uh, it's surprising that that it's what you said about it being fancy, because you know my parents had a hundred acre farm when they sold. I think they probably sold it for like I don't know ninety thousand dollars. Like like you couldn't, you couldn't sell anything out there. And so, and actually I learned at Concordia in a religion class that the Eastern Townships is, or was at the time, the cult capital of North America, because land was so cheap and people just go out and buy, like put a school bus on two acres. And then, you know, it's where the Raelians are from, et cetera. So it was a really interesting place to grow up. Well, I'm starting a cult. And if you'd like to come and join, I'm not, I'm not sure what we're going to do other than drink wine and laugh. But, uh... <laughs> I'm in. And there's lots of Anglos there. So my, uh, I learned to speak French gradually, but, uh, but my husband is, uh, he, he loves it. And, and, and we live on a, something that's called a street, which does not happen in Quebec. So it's, there's lots of, uh, there's lots of Anglos in the, uh, in the neighborhood, which is, which is lovely. And, and you're an Anglo and you now, you now live in the Eastern, you now live in near me too. You sh- it's street as opposed to rue. You mean they use yeah. the English, they actually use the English word. Yeah. Which well. doesn't exist in Quebec. Anyway, we thank you so much, uh, Zoe, for, for coming back and we're glad that you're writing and I hope that it's funny. It doesn't, failure doesn't sound very funny, but, <laughs> but the Gilmore <laughs> it, everything's girl, funny. funny. Everything's funny. Thank you so much, Zoe. Thank you. Take good care. Take care. Okay. Do you want to hear my Raelian story? <laughs> <laughs> So this is not the cult I'm starting. This is no, uh, this no, is your. No, this is uh, so the Raelians are. And I didn't know anything about them. Are they? They're Quebec based. I think Montreal based cult. I don't know what they believe that basically we're just the Raelians are going to be rescued by aliens and they're going to be taken back to. It's kind of it sounds a bit like Scientology, but that you will ultimately be taken back into the heavens by the uh, by the god that they worship. John and I were, had a duplex in Toronto and we rented out the first floor. And the woman that we rented it to was from Montreal. And it turned out she was Aurelian. And and the other thing that was odd about her is all her furniture was round. She had a round bed. She had round sofas. Everything apparently circles are important to Aurelians. 
And then, uh, and then somebody, <laughs> somebody said, you better check your roof to make sure she hasn't painted park here. <laughs> <laughs> so did you go up on the roof or like, who cares? Know. They probably, they may not land. <laughs> they may not land. And it was a Victorian, so it had a pointy roof. So I wasn't too worried about that. But so I just got an email from the head of the Scientology uh, department saying, how dare you compare us to the real <laughs> <laughs> you have to be very careful what you say about Scientology. Oh yeah, my God. everything's funny, Wendy. Everything is funny. Anyway, <laughs> the fake, uh, that's Zoe Whittall, and that was her second attempt to interview her because she lives in the wilderness. I'm off-grid right now, but hopefully we're, we got it to you. And the book is fantastic. If you want a good read, it's a, it's a, it's a page-turner. It's thought-provoking. It's funny. She's a terrific writer and uh, a really good guest. Women of Ill Repute was written and produced by Maureen Holloway and Wendy Mesley with the help from the team at the Sound Off Media Company and producer Yet Belgraver. I'm Debbie Travis. And I'm Tommy Smythe. And this is Trust Me, I'm a Decorator. We're now podcasters. And why did we call it that? Well, you know us as decorators, but we've got lots more to share. We want to talk about travel and relationships. We're going to have amazing guests on. Guests who inspire us for sure. We'll probably talk about design too. And of course, Tommy, don't forget about food. Oh my gosh, how did I forget about food? So please follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or as they say, wherever you get your podcast. And we'll pop right up when we have a new episode. Where's this luck?